Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. Lauren Stelmack is my guest today. I've known Lauren for over 10 years now, and he is someone I've always known as being kind, funny, and with a little sass to him. You may know him from his multiple reigns as emperor as part of the Imperial Sovereign Court of the Wild Rose, an organization that has raised oodles of money for scholarships and charities in Alberta. He's also someone who has been very open with his weight loss and the struggles that go with that. The man we knew as Big Daddy does have a story to tell. He has that personal story that has shaped his life in becoming who he is today. A former nurse, someone who deeply cares for other people. When peeling back the layers of Lauren Stelmack, we find so much, and I look forward to today's conversation with him. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, Lauren Stelmack talks about his life, his work, and everything else in between. Before I bring Lauren to your screen and your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our rainbow community. By listening to our stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection. So let's continue to connect each and every week by being introduced to excellent people who we become smitten with. This episode was recorded live, so do expect technical hiccups, voice snafus, and other things. It's part of creating a podcast, and it's just the way it is. If you're listening on any of the audio platforms, please do give us a like. Make sure that you get notice when future episodes do come out. If you're able to leave any type of comment, a rating, this does help us with the algorithms. And if you're watching here on YouTube, be sure to press the like. Please be sure to subscribe. That helps us in so many ways. It helps to make sure that our stories, which happen to be your stories, do get heard by other people. I am based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And it's important for me to say that, as I would like to acknowledge that I'm living within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homelands and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I'm grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers who are with us today, and those who came before. I continue to open myself to listen, to learn, and to understand. I hope you join me on this journey as we learn truths. I make this acknowledgement as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, my guest is Lauren Stelmack. And it's now time to bring him up on your screen and your listening ears. Lorne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. 
it's been a long time coming and finally you are here to tell us your story and I'm excited to know more. Let's start with you and just a little bit about your background. My understanding is that you had a very close relationship with your grandparents. Myself, my great-grandmother was the star of my life. And I know that we have a connection in this regard. Can you tell me a little bit about your connection with grandparents? When I was around two years old, my mother was uh, killed in a car accident. So my father left us, my sister and I, with his parents on the farm. And he worked in the city and would come out every weekend to spend time with us. And then at the age of 10, we, I lost my father. And so my grandparents continued to raise my sister and I. So at the age of 60, my grandmother started raising children again. She had five of her own when she took us in. One of my uncles was still uh, in high school and uh, she continued all the way through until their passing probably 30 years ago now. They taught me to be strong. They taught me how to work hard. They taught me how to be kind. And uh, that's where I get all my background from. So is that what led you then to go into a nursing career based on what you learned from your grandmother? Yes, but like we, with her, there was 18, she had 18 siblings. Wow. And yes, three sets of twins. Very close with the family. It was a big family. And as they were aging, they were ending up in nursing homes and long-term care centers. And she would go visit them and she would tag me along with her. So I got to used to that. And when I was in high school, I started working at the auxiliary hospital in my hometown, and that's where my nursing career started when I was 16 years old. I'm always amazed with people's backgrounds because I know when I think of my great-grandmother being this strong type, somebody who taught others, it was no wonder that my mother went into uh, teaching, myself have gone into teaching, my sister, my father have roles where they're educating others. And it's just this influence that gets passed down. And I hear that in yourself when you're talking about your grandmother. Let's name check your grandmother. What was her name? Her name was Nancy Stelmack. If you had some words that uh, could describe her to other people, what would be those words? A strong, influential, resourceful, um, always very warm-hearted. Whenever I brought friends home from school, it was automatic. Everybody had to eat. Eat, eat, eat. It didn't matter. And, she, you know, I would think there'd be nothing in the fridge, and she'd pull a meal off like nobody's business. So Ukrainian woman always with the food lived through the depression so they knew what that was her when we lived on the farm the garden was absolutely enormous and she provided for everybody you know all of our food came from the farm our beef chicken pork and then all the vegetables and some fruit and every year her canning jars her canning room was just always full 
and uh, nobody went without. If somebody needed something, she would give it to them. Then when we moved into Lamont, into town, the backyard was quite big. And I thought, oh, good, you know, lots of grass and everything. Are you kidding me? She tore that up and made a big garden. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, somebody might not have. So I have to make big garden. So yes, that continued even into our town life. I, I love grandmas for exactly that. Also, everything that you described is you as well, except for, you know, having the garden, because I think she probably killed you on that because you've been living in an apartment for a while now. And so you're yeah. like, no more gardens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did have a house, but I never had a garden. Flowers? Yes, absolutely. I was like, my, my yard was immaculate because she taught me that. And she taught me about planting and plants and flowers and everything. So yes, lots of that. Lois Holes loved me every year because I'd come spend a grand or two there. But never, never, but even now, like, oh, I shouldn't say that. Because now on my balcony, I've now started to grow tomatoes and herbs and that those kinds of things. And that's part of my weight loss journey as well. But I know, like, from the past, I remember, you know, how she used to do things. And for your grandpa, was there the moment when he would look at you and all these kids and basically be like, I'm too old for this. What the heck? (laughs) My grandfather was quiet. My grandmother ruled the roost. But you knew when he spoke, you, there, he was meaning what he was saying. And the, he never, ever, ever struck us. He did one time, and all he did was take a cushion off the couch and smack me over the head with it. And I was so devastated that he hit me, but well, well deserved. But it was it was quite a, a devastation for me because he actually, you know, took a swing at me with a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what's going on? What's yeah. happening? Yeah, my grandmother was the person of discipline. You know, I remember her, when we got old enough, my sister and I would run and she'd chase us around the house. We'd run around the house, run around the house. And then my sister and I would get ahead of her and we'd go hide in the raspberry bush and she'd still be running around the house. So, yeah. We always have this thing within us, within our community, when we knew that something was up. When we realized that we could be different from the other people around us, when did that happen for you? Probably in my elementary years, I knew there was something different and I enjoyed looking at other men and they were catching my eye. And so I knew that. And then as when we moved into town, my interest began to peak a little more. I started to experiment with other boys. And uh, then I knew that this is what I liked. I w- was not attracted to women at all. But being raised in a strong Ukrainian Catholic family, I did not expose that at all. Like there was no way I was going to come out or admit to it. So I lived the facade for many, many years. I dated girls. I was actually almost engaged to one. And I was panicked because I didn't know what I was going to do. And then she eventually, she broke it off, which was great. worked out perfect for me. And then in my weight loss journey with my therapist, 
I learned that my sexuality played a very big part in my weight gain, where the aha moment came was, if I remained obese and fat, women wouldn't be attracted to me, and then my family would think, well, he doesn't have a girlfriend because he's overweight. So that was a big part of my obesity, like, because I stayed that way. I would diet, but I never really lost that weight because I was scared that they would start, well, why aren't you married? You need to find a girlfriend. So then it was like, you need to lose weight because you need to find a girlfriend. (laughs) So, but it was a big, huge piece in my therapy that I realized. So, yeah. That's... That strikes a person because I absolutely understand with what you're saying. You know, I'm, as you know, I'm positively plump. And there was a reason why I started putting on the weight at a certain age. And for those exact same reasons, as you just mentioned. And I imagine that there's going to be many people who are going to listen to the words that you said and go, ah, yeah, that's part of it. So you had started your nursing career before you even had come out. Right. Yeah. I didn't come out until I was actually 40 years old. Oh. Yeah. So I did my nursing. I started my nursing when I was right out of 18 out of school and I graduated. I'm duly qualified. So I did my psychiatric nursing first. I graduated in 1983 and then I bridged into the RN program and I graduated from that in 1987. So yes, and then I didn't, I was 40 years old. So I graduated just right at the time where the AIDS epidemic was hitting full force. And I remember working and I remember these men with AIDS and HIV and laying in rooms and nobody was allowed to visit. The family didn't want to come visit. And I couldn't understand why people were so scared. I knew, like, for myself, I was living a closeted life. And at that time, was I doing involved in risky sexual behavior? Absolutely. I was cruising Billamy Hill. I was hooking up with guys in back alleys, in, in vehicles and having unprotected sex. How I came clean out of that is beyond me. But yeah, and I was part of that. And I remember nurses were scared because they were scared they were going to catch it and nobody knew exactly what it was. So the care was terrible. And I tell this to people because it was actually lesbians who came and cared for, for these guys. And because their partners weren't allowed in, their partners had no say in what they had. Their families didn't want to have anything to do with them because of their sexuality. So they had nobody advocating and nobody really caring for them. But it was the lesbians that came and did that. And there's a reason why at one time it was the GLBT community. Things got switched to recognize the lesbians who took care of the men during this time. And it was huge. I have to do a small little plug for a previous episode, part two of the conversation with Michael Fair and Liz Messiah. We do go in depth talking about the lesbians here in Edmonton who did exactly what you said, took care of the men, the stigma that went with that, and that still is on 
their shoulders here today. And Michael Fair properly gave the women credit for helping the men somewhat get through this crisis and seeing us to the other end. And I, I observed that, like I, I saw it. I went into the rooms I, I, because I felt a pull and so people are, you know, the other, my coworkers, why are you going in there? You might catch it. And I'm like, nobody, there's no science. There's no, there's been no really experiment to say that we're going to catch it. We don't know what it is. You know, if you use universal precautions, then you're protecting yourself. And I would go in and I would feed, feed them and I would bathe them and everybody, you know, would, you know oh, you're going to catch it. No, no. So I lived through that and uh, yeah, it was quite uh, devastating. Well, and it would have delayed your coming out even more so just. Oh, absolutely. The connection. I've mentioned a few times on the show that I graduated from high school in 93 and I came out in Edmonton and in the next two years, I went to over 20 funerals with people I had just been in contact with. And that number is low compared to so many other people uh, who were in the community. Sir Scott Bryan mentioned one year he went to over 70 just in that year alone. Mutual friend Ron Byers doesn't go to funerals today because it just devastated a person. We need people to remember just how devastating it really was on so many people. Yeah. For yourself, Lauren, you came out at the age of 40, you knocked on the closet door, you opened up the door, you jumped through. That must mean that life was fantastic and perfect right from the beginning. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. The reason I came out was because I was living in my house at that point in time and I had met my partner and he moved in with me into my house. And then my niece who was graduating from high school and was going to be going to Grand McEwen University and she was coming to stay with me. And I'm like, okay, how am I going to do this? <laughs> so I thought I have to tell my sister. No ifs, ands, or buts. I have to tell her. So I tried several times to say now here's the, like my brother-in-law is a great person, but had made some comments and I thought, oh, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to go. And I tried to bring myself to tell her verbally, but I couldn't. So I did it in an email and sent it off, push the button, done. So she called me and she said to me, she goes, well, I kind of knew And I'm like, oh, and she said, well, when gay marriage was legalized, we were having a family dinner after church at my sister's house. So my uncles were there. She was there. Everybody were. And one of my uncles is very, very, very prejudiced, taught his children to be that. So it was like, you know, chinks and khakis and, and, you know, so when the gay marriage was legalized, he started to voice his opinions on that about how wrong it is and these people need to be uh, put in asylums and on and on and on and I was not out yet and I just totally got pissed off 
I slammed my hand on the table. I stood up and I looked him in the eye and I said to him, you mean to tell me that it is not okay for two people, no matter who, two people to love each other, support each other, contribute to society, have jobs, pay taxes, raise children, contribute to their communities. You say that that is wrong, but can I swear? Oh yeah, swear ahead. <clears throat> but it's okay for Catholic priests to fuck little boys up the ass for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what did the Vatican do about it? They moved the priest to a new parish, parish for fresh meat. That's fucking okay to you. You go and kneel and pray to those priests who are fucking little boys up the ass all the time. But two people who want to love each other is not okay. But that's okay. Go fuck yourself. I'm out of here. And out the door I went. So she said, that's what I knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be a giveaway. That Just a little bit. Yeah. But I love that because that's you. You just saying that right now, that's the Lord that... I, I know, and that's we gravitate towards because you are so kind and nice, but then a, a moment happens and you're like, all right, we're good. We're done. That's <laughs> exactly. So you came out, everything was seemingly good. Your niece moved in, I assume. Yeah, niece moved in. Everything was okay. And so... Before I came out, I told them that James had moved in, but he was just my roommate. And so when my sister would come visit, she smokes and James smokes. So they'd go outside and have a cigarette. So they became friends and everything. So then it was a little easier to say, well, James is actually my partner. So then, yeah, everything went well. And I knew if I just told her, she'd tell the whole family. So I didn't have to make this big announcement. And she did. However, nobody ever asked me or questioned me or said anything to me about my sexuality. It was just a silent piece. Mm -hmm. So when there were things happening, like a wedding or something, I was invited, but James was not. So I knew that this the acceptance was not there. Yeah. So... I questioned that, like, why is James my partner? Oh, well, you know, so-and-so doesn't want them. So I'm like, well, then you're saying you're okay with it, but then you're not. Okay. Eventually, James and I were together for about seven years, and then we had split up. And I had gotten involved in the court in Edmonton, and there was at one point where I did drag. So pictures were taken, things went out on Facebook, some of my family saw stuff, and then all of a sudden there was no connection with my family whatsoever. And so they thought, when I spoke with one of my cousins, they told me that my family thought that I wanted to be a woman and they weren't okay with that, and that was it. So it's now been seven years since I've had any contact with my family. So... When they say chosen family, I have chosen family, and that's within this community. Yeah. Chosen family and the ability to choose who's part of that chosen family is a superpower that we have. The blood family may suck, 
and not a good way, but we have the ability to overcome and persevere. And yeah, yeah we've talked a lot about Chosen Family on this podcast on how important that is. Yeah. And I know that within my Chosen Family, we share family members, you know, yeah. we, and it's so important, you know, so hey, Cousin Lauren. <laughs> yeah, and belonging to the the uh, Edmonton Court has really opened that door internationally for me because the court system is an international court system where we travel, we go to each other's coronations and crownings and stuff. So over the years, I have developed friendships throughout U.S. and Canada and really tight knit friendships. I don't have to see them, but we still keep in contact and we chat. We, we're always there for support. And I know that if I am in anywhere that there is a court system and I'm in trouble, all I have to do is reach out and the Calvary will come running to save me. I know that. That is a given. And I'm not worried about, because I travel, I go to New York a lot, to their coronation, San Diego, Las Vegas. I try and go to all these big places in the U.S. And you develop these friendships over the years. And like right now, this weekend is a big weekend for the international court system, where the head of the, the, the international court is a queen mother, Nicole the Great. Today, they are celebrating her 15th anniversary of her reign. They also have an international court council, which consists of anywhere from 30 to 40 members from courts throughout Canada and U.S., and they are invested into the council. So it's a really big day today, especially for the Queen Mother, who is now 15 years of her reign as the head of the International Court Council. I really wanted to be there. She called me to come, but unfortunately I couldn't get the time off work, so I'm not able to attend. Because I did sit on the International Court Council for a couple of years. I was actually the Canadian minister to the Queen Mother, and I still right now sit on the Privy Council for the Queen Mother, where she seeks our advice on certain things that she wants to do. The court system is just amazing to look at the history and the ebbs and flows and how it's created. Previous episodes of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, you can find out more about the history. Rob Borowski, Ron Byers, Godiva, Layaway did a two-part episode talking about the Imperial uh, Sovereign Court of the Wild Rose based here in Edmonton and Northern Alberta to find out more about that. It's just amazing. If you want to really know your queer history, take a look at the court system. Yeah. Lauren, I know you are a multi-time emperor. Can you tell us the years and the reigns because it just boggles the mind but i know that for you you're able to just say exactly what that is in a split second i've been involved with the court now for over 15 years i was invited to a ball with two friends of mine and i went and i saw all the money that they gave to charity and it just stole my heart and i knew it's something that i wanted to be part of 
Six months later, I was president of the board of directors for the Edmonton Court. And then I uh, moved on from there. I became uh, a crown prince for Empress Mardi Gras, Empress Sundance. And then the following year, I ran for emperor with my Empress Ivana Diamonds. We were successful. And so we had that reign. And then two years later, there wasn't any candidates for emperor and empress. So six of us took on the challenge of running the year, which was a lot of fun because it was, you know, Rob Brodsky, Jim McBride, myself as emperors, Ivana Diamonds, Mardi Gras, and Layaway as empresses. And we each brought to the table something different. We were all strong people in the community and we all had our ideas and we had a, a, a great and successful reign. For me, there is no better feeling in the world than when you're at your step-down coronation and you're giving out those checks to charity. That's, that's what I, why I do it. That's why I continue to do it. That's why I continue to be a support and a mentor and get in there and continue because it's just a wonderful feeling to be able to give back to your community that gives you so much. And back in December, I was asked to be a judge for the Merry Christmas contest. And it was great to be able to see Rob and Godiva give a check for a scholarship to one of the youths within the community for her to continue her studies at McEwen. And just the look on the youth's face to receive yep. it makes a huge difference and it was inspiring to see and the work that all of you have done with the court is just yeah ha oh, if if it wasn't for the court so many people would have gone without and who knows where they would have been now it's major props to all of you hey what? you mentioned being part of everything with Mardi Gras and i've always looked at that year as being a game changer in so yeah. many ways, partly because of who Marnie is and what Marty brought to the table with her story. What did you learn from that year as being a prince, which helped you when you did become emperor? I learned that the that people are very giving and people can be very understanding and that the world isn't as bad as what we really think. If you go out there and you raise awareness, uh, people tend to step back and take a look. Marnie's year, we, we the switch around was making the court more of a business than a party time. So the focus then began to really look at how do we raise funds? And Marnie had multiple ideas from selling her pom-poms. Like I remember she ran the Edmonton Marathon and on her journey, she was selling pom-poms. And I remember her running in her cheerleader outfit with her pom-poms and we were on the road and it was, and people are buying the pom-poms and she was just, it was amazing to watch and amazing the impact that she had on the community. And I was able to be part of that. The sad part of that was that year Sundance's husband developed cancer. So he was not able to 
to do the things that he wanted, but I was able to step in for him. And at the end, he wanted me to be named the emperor because he wasn't there. And I said, absolutely not. You were there for support. You were there for guidance. I absolutely not. I would not take that away. He needed to look after his husband and he did that, but he also came to support where he could. So it was a, a, a challenging year, but I really, I had known Marnie for some time, but I really got to know Marnie because we traveled together. And it, was, it wasn't until Winnipeg's coronation that the two of us just really clicked. And after that, her and I went to New York probably for eight years together. Yeah. That was our thing. The name of the New York ball that you would always go to? A Night of a Thousand Downs. Love the name. Yeah. Tell me a story from then. It's held usually in the Marriott Marquis, right on Times Square. You walk out the door of the hotel, there's Times Square. Right there. All of Broadway. It's just beautiful. And the ball itself is a full night of entertainment. There's no intermissions. There's no nothing. It's just continuous entertainment and they bring in artists and and it's just the food is fantastic it is a night of a thousand gowns because people are like literally crowns and gowns beauty pageant it is amazing rupaul sends some of her queens to this ball it's oh i i i and and it's an opportunity because when you go when you have a coronation the host hotel, you get a group rate. So instead of paying $700 a night for in that hotel, you're actually only paying $250 a night. So it's a good, cheap way to travel and to see places. So I went like nine years. I went to New York. And then when COVID hit, of course, I haven't been there, but we are going this year. There's six of us going and I'm very excited. Everything's booked. And we are going, and I am so excited to come. And they're very happy to have us back. I've let uh, the Court of New York, because I've because I've gone so many times, I have a lot of strong relationships there with people. And so they're all excited about us coming. The first year I went, I didn't know a soul. But they made it their mission to know who I was. And the stepping down emperor and empress actually took us around and took us to places and took us for dinner. That's the kind of things that we do for each other. And I'm still friends with them to this day. 12 years later, I'm, I still keep in, in contact. And so I'm excited to see them again. I'm going to go see my family because yeah. I consider them family. Yeah. So Emperor Ten of New York, Gabriela Delanote, He's also known as Big Daddy. So he's Big Daddy number one, and I'm Big Daddy number two. So where did the name Big Daddy actually come from? Was it because of this, or did you have that before the court system? I had, no, I got it in the court system when I had to come up with a sort of like a drag name. And initially, every time I, because I, I started going to Boots, and so they would call me Alberta Beef and oh something, all these other different names. So I had to come up with a name. And because of my size, we decided on Big Daddy. 
because I was like, you know, 500 pounds. <laughs> well, and before we get to the weight loss journey, I do want to reference and come back to your first year of being an emperor with Ivana Diamonds. And the name for the year played upon the fact that both of you had padding in different areas and definitely making it as part of the journey. Yeah. People said that we were too fat to run for Emperor and Empress, that we wouldn't be able to do anything. So we turned it around and our house name was Two Tons of Fun. And was it Two Tons of Fun for you the it entire year? certainly was. We never, till this day, my Empress, Ivana, is my bestest friend in the world. And when we were Emperor and Empress, we connected probably about four or five times a day. And if she heard something going on, she'd call me. If I heard something going on, I'd call her. And we would nip problems in the bud before they even started. So there are challenges to running for Emperor and Empress, but you know what? We didn't let that happen. We didn't let people over overstep on us and we ran our year. We always came to say, we really didn't care about how much money we raised. What we wanted was to raise awareness and we wanted people to have fun. But in the end, we ended up, I think we raised 34000 I think. And that went to prostate cancer and breast cancer and Camp Firefly and the Pride Center. Part of doing this podcast is to remember people and give tribute to our history. So can you provide the names of the other people who were your Duke and Duchess and Prince and Princess for that year? Well, our Prince and Princess were Rob and Godiva. And they happen to be this year's Emperor and Empress finally yeah. together. Yes, finally. Well, we've been waiting for Godiva for many years. Let me tell you, I was at, like, I bought her a, a beautiful brooch like years ago, because I, when she ran for Empress, I was going to give her that. Well, she wasn't running and wasn't running. So she had a birthday party, a uh, uh, catered dinner that she invited me to. So I gave her her brooch for her birthday. If you're not running for Empress, here, have it. <laughs> so now she's Empress. We've been waiting for a long time. And Rob, of course, this is now his fourth time as Emperor. And he was like, because when you run for Emperor, when you're Emperor and Empress, you have to come up for candidates for Prince and Princess. So I was kind of like, who am I going to ask? Because the pickings were kind of slim. But I did ask Rob and I did ask LJ Steele. So both of them agreed. Rob was the winner. Jeff Park stepped up as my Duke. So it was a great year. I had fun. Godiva was a little bit of a problem in Winnipeg when I heard that the Princess of Edmonton was throwing drinks at the security guard over the hotel roof. I've heard this story. Yes. 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 They, they, they okay. made a little bit of a mention in their episodes. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I'm at hospitality and I hear, oh, God, did you hear about the princess from Empton? She was throwing her drinks over the roof at the security guard. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I go banging on her door. She's hung over. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> so yeah there they were we were on the rooftop and there she was throwing drinks at the security guard that's walking on the sidewalk well 
Godiva, we love you. And oh, all yeah. shapes oh, yeah. and forms. Yeah. <laughs> and when they were stepping, when they said they were announced that they were going to run for Emperor and Empress, oh man, I was so excited. Like I knew that this was going to be good because that team, that pair is a perfect match. Yeah, they absolutely are. They're doing great work and it's excellent that the city of Edmonton has people like them who are running the court here for this year to get us through whatever 2022 is because yeah. <laughs> it's a strange beast upon itself. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of people here who are going to be like, okay, you've talked about family. You've talked about healthcare. We've talked about the court. Why haven't we talked about this other thing? And so we're going to get to this now. So the man formerly known as Big Daddy, or still known as Big Daddy, has gone through a dramatic change when it comes to health. Yes. You've alluded to it before that putting on the weight was some type of way to cushion, to block out the stress that was taking place in your life. You've been very open about everything. So, what was your highest weight? My highest weight was 498 pounds. Okay. And you were diagnosed as being morbidly obese. Yes. When the doctor told you that, was that a trigger that you had to make a change right away? Or was it a long time in coming? It was a long time coming, and it, I came to the realization that if I don't do something, I will be dead in the next year or two. I knew that. I was diabetic on high doses of insulin. I had high blood pressure, and I was on three different blood pressure pills. I couldn't do anything without my heart racing, so I was on two heart rate pills. I had severe sleep apnea to the point where I stopped breathing over a hundred times in a minute. So I knew that I would be dead. Like I could not even walk, not even a half a block without breaking out into a sweat or, or being short of breath. Like, I don't know if you remember Boots, the, you know, they had the four parking stalls in front. Just to walk from my vehicle inside the building I was short of breath and dripping sweat. So I knew that I would die. I would be dead. So I had to do something. So I did go to an internist and I said, I need to change. So he made a referral to the Edmonton Bariatric Clinic. And they took me in. My referral went in in December of 2014. And then January of 2015, they booked me in and I started going. I don't know if any other province has this the same program, but this program in Edmonton was most excellent for, for me. In order to, to get, so I, would, I knew that I needed surgery because I had dieted all my life and did the yo-yo thing. You know, you, you lose, then you gain more. Then you lose and you gain even more. Then you lose and you gain even more. Then I went through my breakup. Then I didn't want people to know I was gay. 
And all these things played into it. And the gait, the weight just came and came. My pant size, well, my size that I took in the shirt was a 7X. My waist was 68. Okay. I am now down to a 2X and my waistline is a 44. Oh, so that I, is yeah, wonderful. so at the bariatric program, you have to attend regularly. If you miss three sessions, you're booted out. You must see the nurse, the dietitian, the psychologist, the internist, and the, oh, there's one more. You had to see them all. And when you came, you had to bring a journal of your food, what you ate. And if you didn't bring it, you were sent home and you had to fax it in. There was no, no, you'll bring it next time. Uh -uh. Mm -hmm. So you, like they had rules and you had to fit in. And so I did, I followed everything that they did. And then in September of 2015, once they feel you're ready, they refer you to the surgeon who then will make the final decision. So I got referred to the surgeon. He saw me. He said I needed the gastric bypass because he'll decide whether which, which surgery you want. The, the, if you get the, the sleeve or the bypass or the banding. So he said, you're having the gastric bypass. But then he said, in order for you to have surgery, your BMI has to be 50 or below. So at that point in time, my BMI was still 57. So he put me on this thing called Optifast. And it, what it is, is a shake. It's a powder. And you get four of those a day and that's it. You get no food, no solid food. And it's supposed to be for six weeks, but I ended up being on it for three months. So somehow I slipped through the cracks. And uh, yeah, so in the first week on this Optifast, I dropped 19 pounds. So my BMI came down and so I had my surgery. The people think that because you have the gastric bypass surgery, you'll be able to eat anything you want after that and everything's fine. That's not true. You still need to watch what you eat. You still need to abide by diet and exercise. I've dropped now 252 pounds and I'm I need probably another 40 or 50 more, but the surgery itself has done what it was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. So the rest is up to me. So I go to the gym daily and I'm, you know, I'm struggling to lose these last 40 to 50, but I'm contact with the bariatric clinic again, who they're like giving me suggestions and what I need to do and very, very helpful. So I always thought, you know, as I was Getting older, you know, in my 20s and 30s, I was obese. I was like 300, 350, 400 pounds. Oh, feeling great. Everything's great. I'm traveling. I'm doing this. When you hit that 45-year-old mark, things start to go south. Yes, it and does. And they go south very quickly. Yes. I'm lucky because all of my medical issues are resolved. Two days after my surgery, they took me off of all the insulin. They took me off all of my blood pressure pills, my heart rate pills. Right now, I I was told I don't have to use my CPAP anymore, but I am so used to my girlfriend at night, I can't sleep without her. Mm -hmm. So I actually I still put it on because I can't sleep without my CPAP. 
But yes, it was the best decision I made in the world. Yeah. And, and it's been amazing to watch you with this journey and the weight is off your shoulders as well in many ways. Yeah. You've also got a really unique perspective that some people don't have when it comes to having the weight as well as the weight loss within the gay community and the perceptions that come with it. Yeah. What can you tell our listeners about dating as a heavier set person, dating as a lighter person? Are there differences? Is it the same? And does our community fat shame? Oh, our community definitely fat shames. Huge. Our, like we, as a queer community, we literally eat each other. You know, obesity, transgender, drag, like lesbians, cross-dressers. There's always somebody that has to make a remark about something. And I will take that time and opportunity to do in-time teaching. Like, you know, that's not cool. That's not okay to say that this person is trying to live who they are. So why are you obstructing that? When I was at my heaviest, I, I still had, well, not really dates, but hookups. Because there are men out there who like big men. And in this city there are. And around the world there are. So I belong to this, and I still belong to the site. Uh, it's called Bigger City. We're a site for chubs, chasers, bears. And when I had my weight loss, there were a lot of comments. Oh, you look better when you were fat and, and this kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. If you're not into me anymore, that's, that's so you love you. I said, I didn't do it for you. I did it for me. This is my journey and I'm happy where I'm at. I'm happy with myself. And if you don't want to be part of that, that's fair enough. Because when I travel to these cities, I meet these guys and, they, and they, if I travel again, you know, like they become sort of like regulars and yeah. stuff. And some of them don't want anything to do with me, which is fine. I get that. You know, this is what you're into. Great. If I'm not that anymore, then that's it. And then being lighter, dating per se, I, I would love to have a date. I, would, I, I haven't had a date in years. It all seems to be oh, let's hook up and, and stuff. So it's just a bunch of emptiness. It's not really meaningful. Don't get me wrong, I like my sex, but I would rather be in a relationship. I would rather be in a monogamous relationship and have somebody that I can love and care for and who would love and care for me. And just to be able to go for a walk and hold hands and go for dinner and enjoy each other's company. People always say, like, are you lonely? And I'm like, actually, I'm not. I, I have a lot of chosen family and friends, and I'm always in connection, and I'm always doing something. So I'm good. But do I get lonely? Absolutely. You know, there are times where I'd like to wake up and have somebody beside me, you know, make breakfast and do things. So, yeah. You were talking about your story, Lauren, and I remember... Boots and Junction. And I remember coming over to you a few times and saying, all right, 
the next dance, you and me, dance floor. And, you know, not even recognizing the fact that here you are in this health issue and going, I, I just can't, <laughs> you know, I just didn't yeah. even trigger with me. And I do apologize for maybe giving you some stress during that time. But it, those are things that you recognize later that we just don't spend enough time looking at life through another person's shoes and maybe seeing what they're going through because we yeah. all have these struggles. The, the Baratja Clinic, has, has they've asked me if it would be okay for them to give out my email to people struggling whether they want to have the surgery or not. And I've done so. Like before COVID, I would actually meet people for coffee and I would discuss my journey. I would never say, oh, yeah, you should have it. It's their choice. But this this was my journey and this is what it did for me. So then that leaves them to think about, okay, well, maybe I'm going to do this. So, so Lauren, yeah. when evolution is able to get the dance floor up again and I wander in, are you actually going to take me up on that offer to go for the dance? Absolutely. It was phenomenal for me because as through the journey, you, all these things start changing, you know, not only your clothes and, and, but just these little things like I had to push the seat of my car up. Oh, just yeah. that simple little thing is like, is a triumph. Yeah. I, I try at least three times a week, if not more, to when I park in the parkade underground, I try to walk up the 10 flights of stairs because I can do it now. I can do it. So I push myself at the gym. I push myself to do different things. You know, now that I'm trying to lose this weight, I've talked to my physiotherapist from the clinic and she said she made some very important suggestions because I go to the Commonwealth Stadium gym. And the reason I started going there was because Jim McBride took me there and it has an indoor track because I'm very afraid, especially in the winter, to walk outside because it's icy. And if I fall, I don't want to break anything. So it has an indoor track. So I would walk around that track. So, you know, my physiotherapist says, stop doing that, get on the treadmill and put it on an incline. Start increasing that ability because you can do it. So yeah, so that's what I'm starting to do. And then increasing my weights to build muscle mass. So my metabolism starts increasing. And when I'm doing these aerobic activities, I'm actually losing weight. Mm. I can't wait to hear more when you do get to New York because sitting in that airplane seat has got to be... Oh, I can, I can do the seat belt up without even, without an extension. That was another, like I actually, when I got onto the plane, where was I going? I was just going to Vancouver and I thought, oh, I'm going to try. And it did. And I literally, I started to cry. I was sobbing. And this, this, the flight attendant came and she's like, are you okay? Is everything okay? And I, so I told her. So she got on there and, and she announced it. So everybody was cheering me on the plane. And I'm just like, oh my God. So yeah, <laughs> like, it was just, yeah. 
You mentioned Vancouver, and I know Vancouver uh, has a soft spot for you. And I know that your chosen family who live in Vancouver will be listening to this podcast. Have to give them a shout out here as well. What does Vancouver mean to you? Vancouver is my actual second home. I've been going there for many years, mostly because my I call him my brother. My my brother, my two brothers, Jason, Justin, and Corey, moved to Vancouver. So and they became part of Vancouver's court. And I would go every year to Vancouver Ball. And Corey was always the ball coordinator. So I would help. Whatever they needed to do, I'd work the door, I go get groceries, I'd set up tables, get everything set up. Whatever they needed to do, I did. And I've done that for many years. And they've given me recognition over the years. And I'm part of that court because I just go and I help. And I'll go out, like, I'll look and I'm like, oh, Carlotta's having her first show. So I zoomed out to Vancouver to go see her show. And if they're, you know, Coco puts on a Christmas fundraiser every year. So I couldn't go this year. So I sent $100 with to Corey give it to Coco to put towards donation. You know, so these are the things that I do because I want to support my sister court. And, and, and Vancouver is the mother court of Canada. That was the original court that started. With, uh, so I've always done my research with people and that's something I pride myself in. And I need to make mention of something about you and you may not want to talk about it, so we can edit it out later on as well. But can you tell me a little bit about a phone call that you made and being able to connect somebody with their mom in PEI? Oh, my God, yes. So I I have my big heart. So when I, I love ice caps, Tim Horton's ice cap. Is my favorite. If you want to get me anywhere, just bring me an ice cap and you're going to get what you want. So <laughs> when I go through the drive-thru, there's always homeless people there. And I always will give them, you know, I always keep a $5 bill in my vehicle so that if there's somebody there, I can give it to them. And I just happened to come this one time and somebody was sitting at the garbage can, leaning against the garbage can with a sign and his head was hung low. He had a hoodie on. So I opened the window and I asked him if he wanted something to eat. And he raised his head and he was very young. And he said, yes, I'm starving. And I said, okay. I said, you go meet me at the door and I'm going to park and we'll get you something to eat. So I parked, We went, both of us went inside and I said, you order whatever you wanted. $40 later, fine. We sit down and I start to talk to him about his journey, like what's happened. And it turns out that he moved here from PEI and had a job, but because of COVID, the uh, company had to let go of employees. So he was let go. He didn't have money for rent. He didn't have money to pay for his cell phone. He had no way of calling his parents. So he was basically alone and living in the streets. He wasn't going to any of the shelters because he got beat up. So he was too afraid to. So he was living on the street. And I was just like disheartened by this 
young kid, 19 years old, and in a city where he knows no one and no one to help him and no way of getting, he didn't know where to go. So I said to him, I said, okay, so what we're going to do, and it was starting to get cold out. So I said, okay, we're going to go get you some clothes. So I took him to Walmart, got him uh, like gloves and scarves and mitts and a good jacket and a new pair of runners and jeans and, and a nice warm sweater, got him all these things. And then I decided to take him to the Boyle Macaulay, to the social worker there. And he didn't know anything about this place or anything. I said, we'll try. So we did see the social worker. I said, if you need anything else, here's my phone number. Call me and I will be here. So I thought, oh, you know, maybe, he, maybe I could get him a ticket, flight ticket back to PEI. So I came home and I went online and like flights were like $400 and I'm like, shit, yeah, I could do this. So, but then in the meantime, I got a phone call from the social worker and she said, would you be able to take him to the airport? And I'm like, airport? She goes, yes, I got a hold of his mother and his mother has bought him a ticket to come back home. And she'd like you to call her. And she said, so can you take him to the airport? And I'm like, absolutely. So then I thought, oh, God, the dude doesn't have any anything to put his clothes in that I just bought him. So I, I had this big suit, old suitcase that I didn't use anymore. So I took that with me. We packed up all of his luggage. We went to the airport. He had a layover in, in Toronto. So I gave him $40. I said, you know, when you get to Toronto have something to eat and that and that'll get you back back home and i did and i called his mom and his mom was so appreciative that i had done this for her son and i'm still in contact with him every once in a while he'll text me and he'll he tells me that he's doing great um he's not working but he is when covid is over he is planning to move back here because he enjoyed Edmonton so much. And so he asked if if he came back, if he if I would, you know, if he needed anything that he could come and see me. Absolutely, no problem. So he's home, he's safe, he's happy. Yeah. And that everybody is Lauren Stelmack. That's who he is. That's him. And that's the Lauren I have grown to love all these years. Lauren, you are an absolute brilliant soul, and I'm so happy for you in so many ways. Your journey has been a long one. It's been ups and downs and perseverance galore. And the healthcare system benefited by having you in it greatly. 38 Uh, years. (laughs) 38 years. And you made that decision to transition out. And was it the right decision for you? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was the right decision for me. It opened another door for me. Like my plan was to retire and then travel, you know, to Mexico and Palm Springs. But COVID ended that. And then I thought, oh, what am I going to do? I can't just sit around. I need to do something. 
So I saw this job at Amazon and I applied for it and I got it and I'm loving it. So I'm like, I'm working full time again, but you know what? They've put me into a different, like I'm, I'm looking after all the WCB cases on site. So it's something new for me. It's something that I'm learning. I'm able to take some courses here and there and I am loving every bit of it because I get to learn again and learn something new and help people and guide them on their journey to get back to work. So still doing healthcare, but in a different way. And just being quintessential, Lauren. A couple last questions before uh, we leave each other for today. We made mention that your name, Big Daddy, are you still Big Daddy today? I am still Big Daddy. Um, People say, oh, well, maybe we should call you medium daddy or small daddy. And I'm no, 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 I'm still big daddy. I'm big still in uh, different ways. <laughs> yeah. Well, just some things got smaller, but some things <laughs> got bigger. And it's like, oh, after 50 years, there you are. It's good to see you. Oh. <laughs> uh. If you're here on audio, uh, listening and not watching us, I did get a little bit red, but I'm not trying to laugh too loud because I do have this huge laugh that I just can't edit out later. <laughs> well, um, I went to Evolution the other night and the door person said, I said, oh, are you going to make me? Because, you know, they always ask for your ID and you have to pull out your ID. Typically, I normally I really don't have to because I'm just a regular there. But I said, are you going to make me pull it out? And so the guy says, well, I heard it's pretty big. And I'm like, what? Yeah. And then somebody on the stairs says, yeah, that's what I heard too. I'm like, what? Who is saying these things? <laughs> hey, I always end an interview kind of in a RuPaul way, but... I always go back to the age of 15 because the age of 15 was an important year for me. My only sister was born. That's when I really knew about myself being part of the rainbow community. But because of the AIDS crisis, I was worried that even if I announced that I was gay, that would automatically give me HIV. I lived in a small village of 172 people. You know nothing at that stage. So you get scared and we and weird out. But 15 was a big age for me. If you were walking through a park and you saw the 15-year-old Lauren Stelmack sitting on a bench and you took time to sit beside him, what would you say to him? I would say that life is, is going to be full of struggles, but you're, you will endure and overcome. You're strong. You were taught good basics on how to survive. And life is going to be good. Yeah. And it is like my, like I am going to turn 60 years old this year and I have never been happier in my life than I am now. Mm -hmm. I'm healthy. I have great chosen family and chosen friends. I, I'm, you know, secure in my life. I know who I am. I know in what direction I'm going. I know what I want. I know what I don't want. I know what I will tolerate, what I won't tolerate. And <clears throat> some of the, like, I get often asked, like, how do you remain so calm all the time? 
you don't let anything get to you. And I'm like, okay, well, I may be smiling on the outside, but on the inside, I'm thinking, how am I going to light you on fire? (laughs) Or how am I going to smash your head in with a bat? So that's how I cope with things. It's, you have to, it's, and it's, and it's, you learn to not react. You learn to sit back, take it in, and like react inside, but always keep that smile and okay, you know, because everybody's perspective and everybody's journey is different. And you never know what's going on. Somebody may be a jerk. What's going on in their life? Find that out. Lauren, we've got a lot of similarities. So I'm really glad that we had this conversation as I get to know you even more. I've got a glass in my hand. Do you have a glass? Beside I you? do. All right. So a toast to grandparents. Yes. A, a toast to chosen family. And a toast to you, my friend. Thank You're you very excellent. much. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate that. Mm. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's a long time coming. And let's give a shout out to uh, somebody who we both know well. He comes and talks to me each and every time. And he has listened to every episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My husband doesn't even listen to as many episodes as Doug Hunter has. But just a shout out to you. Just being an amazing human being and somebody who's close to both Lauren and I. Cheers to him. Yes, absolutely. All right, everyone. On behalf of my guest, Lauren Stelmack, my name is Douglas Parsons. You've been listening to an episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Please take a listen to previous podcasts. You will find a story that touches your heart, recognize people who are like you, and learning people's stories and knowing where we come from is always important. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode, reminding you now to be good and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody. Bye-bye.